This is an Area Code podcast. You're listening to The Table of Malcontents, where Aaron Armstrong and Dave Schrader talk about the books they love and a few they really don't to help you be a better reader. Hey everybody, welcome to today's episode of Table of Malcontents. I'm Aaron and with me as always is Dave. Dave, how's it going? Uh, well, I'm, uh, you know, I think the permafrost is, uh, not as frosty right now. No, it disappeared uh, after like two days. It did. That's what happens in Middle Tennessee. We, uh, we had, uh, the great ice over and snow over. Uh, it was Canada's brief visit to Middle Tennessee and, uh, but it promptly retreated and here yeah. we are. It's going to be a 65 degree day as we record this and, uh, uh, spring is in the air, but, uh, you know, is Canada still like, you know, locked over with a sheet of like green Greenland ice? Is that what's that, happening? That's a good question. Um, it depends on the year. It could be, I mean, you know, it's winter, like 13 months of the year there anyway. So, okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, let's, let's find out because this is good radio is Googling weather. So. Yes. Yeah, exactly. This is this is what everyone wants to hear right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is what we're here for, everybody. Uh, it is currently uh, below freezing in London, Ontario, Canada, where yeah. I lived previously. So, okay. uh, so it's horrible and it's just the worst, but it's rumored to get up above freezing toward the 20 toward the weekend next week. That's real. That's wild news for Canada, right there. So that's right. There's hope. There is hope. hope. Well, that's right. Because we're in because we're in March now, and yeah, March is when it gets weird, and you'll get snow one day, and then it'll be, and then it'll be seventy the next. Absolutely, it's like living in Colorado. (laughs) Exactly. You you can get four seasons in one day. It's amazing. Uh, That's that's very true. Very true. Well, we're we're here today to. because I, I I've I brought someone to bring some middle ground here. Uh, oh, good. Uh, we we have we have uh, the amazing author Lynn Anger joining us of the great state of Minnesota. So, Lynn, uh, we're so glad you could be here and do this. This is uh, uh, this has been something we've talked about for a while. So my apology my apologies for reaching out. Like I literally was, but what a week ago I think I reached out and I said we'd love to have you on. Um, we've talked about you for a long time, so people should know uh, Len Anger because um, you know we've explored your brother's writing over time. But uh, as we've uh, as we've grown, a lot of people, especially Aaron and one of our previous co-hosts Barnabas, um, were reading a lot of your books at the same time too. So that's a lot of how it came about. So I am your recent convert, just to like just to clarify, and I'm I'm gonna. I want you to kind of give a better introduction of yourself in that too, but um, this is way overdue, but um, but we're just glad to have you on the show. Well, thanks for inviting me, guys. It's uh, it's my pleasure to be here, and Leif has spoken very fondly of both of you. And in fact, we talked yesterday, and, uh, he, you know, he's had nothing but good, th- good things to say about his conversations, but also his visit down to Nashville. I don't know when it was a few years ago, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's, it's, uh, this is something I'm looking forward to. Yeah. And as far as weather goes, uh, you guys don't know weather. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm about three hours from the border and, um, 
in the in the dead middle of the country mm-hmm. and our ice leaves our streets in april um so it's yeah it's been a actually a pretty mild winter but we had a 10 15 day stretch of not reaching zero so we were below zero day and night for uh two weeks and, mm-hmm. and it was it was deadly mm-hmm. um, both my cars actually yeah both my cars died um, it, it was, i won't even go there but it was Ugh. it was terrible did, we did have, you have to for you have to abandon the cars in the side of the road or was it just in your car <laughs> believe me i belong to triple a I mean, it's an advertisement. It's a great organization. <laughs> Absolutely agree. All right. So we, I, I again, I, I want you to uh, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. But I, this first thing, since you live in Moorhead, Minnesota, and that's part of the story, but I do have a quick question. All right. Tell us the biggest difference between across the river. You've got Fargo, North Dakota. Is there literal uh, gang warfare? Tell us about the big differences between those in Fargo versus Moorhead, Minnesota. Well, uh, Moorhead's uh, in Minnesota, right? And so uh, we are, uh, we, we're, we're very civilized here. <laughs> Cross the river and it's, it's an open game. <laughs> no, actually Fargo has changed radically in 30 years since we moved here. Um, Fargo used to be Kind of a rough town um mm. and it's been uh there's been a, a renaissance in fargo so now people travel to fargo fly into fargo because it's such a such a uh interesting downtown um mm-hmm. and revitalized uh a lot of good eating um so actually Fargo's pretty pretty great but the north dakota minnesota that's the edge of the west and growing up um uh, our family lived in minnesota but my parents both hailed from North Dakota. So we spent a lot of time crossing the border and going into that world that felt uh, comparatively uncivilized and wild. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the landscape is different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's drier um, and it's uh, it's just a, a less um, settled place, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, but, you know, I, I like it because my, my roots hail from from North Dakota and, and I would say good things about it. Um, but it is there's no no question that it's it's a different milieu. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's we're I'm, I'm living right on that dividing line mm-hmm. uh, along the Red River, the north, um, the flatland. And people think of Minnesota as being, you know, woods and lakes and hills mm-hmm. and which it is, but but uh, not the West. Um, I'm 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 in the West. And in a five minutes, I'm I'm into um, completely different country. Hmm. Hmm. So when you when you grew up, did you venture? You said you said you hailed, or at least a lot of your family history comes from North Dakota, which I I didn't know that. Where, uh, tell us a little bit about that. My uh, great grandfather on my dad's side uh, uh, homesteaded near uh, Oaks, North Dakota, which is southeastern North Dakota, in 1883, and so. Um, my my dad grew up in North Dakota. He was second generation, and and my mother did as well. Grew up in North Dakota, so that's the those are the those are the family roots on both sides for Leif and and for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as children, we spent a lot of time there with grandparents. Um, a lot of time there hunting. My dad was a big goose hunter, <laughs> so uh, we were we we spent a lot of time every time the family drove anywhere. They weren't travelers. It was 
into the West, into North Dakota. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you start to think about life's first book, um, my second book, <laughs> my second book. Um, you know, we, you, can, you can feel that movement mm-hmm. into the West. Um, and that's simply a kind of echo of our childhood where anytime we got to go anyplace, that's where we went. Mm-hmm. Um, so those books come out of that that kind of uh, geographical experience, um, mm-hmm. not to mention, um, well, I mean, books come out of place, you know, uh, my yeah. books come out of place. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of, those are, <laughs> those are just almost, you know, reflex books in a way. Yeah, sure. So on that note, why, why is it that place is so important in, 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 your writing in particular? Well, you know, I, I can't speak for anyone else, but for me, I can't, uh, I can't imagine a story unless I can imagine myself in the place the story takes, happens. And mm-hmm. so I have tried, I have tried writing books that, that um, are set in places that I don't necessarily know. It's not even whether I know them, it's whether I feel them. I mean, I, I, uh, I have to have this kind of uh, inner gravity that's holding me in a place in order to write about it. And um, story for me comes out of those connections I feel to, to various places. Um, the books I've written are all set in places that I feel, not necessarily that I love, but places that I understand and places mm-hmm. where... Um, uh, the, the kind of places that would inhabit my dream life um, are, 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 you know, are where my stories come from. It, it, and I don't really understand that, why that is, but, but fiction is different than any other kind of writing because what you're doing is you're rendering the world. You're not analyzing the world. You know, you're not writing a dissertation or a sermon or, a, uh, or a, an essay. You know, you're, you're recreating life. And where do we live our lives? We live our lives in places. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to me, it's so organic. Mm-hmm. No, I, I understand what you mean. There, I've, um, you know, as we will we'll continue joking on Aaron being from Canada. Yeah, I'm, from, I'm from St. Louis in Kansas City originally. And but I've now lived here this past year was my first year that marked the longest I'd ever lived in one place. And, wow. uh, you know, and I, I told Aaron, I said, I've I, not that I didn't call myself a Tennessean before, but I confidently would say that now just because this is just part of the history. I know this place so well. I also know where I grew up and there's a lot of that. But so mm-hmm. I certainly understand that the uh, I know the whole adage about writing is write what you know, and you're certainly expressing that. Uh, tell me about you as an English professor, though. So you're at Minnesota, Minnesota State Moorhead, right? What, what do you tell your students about that, too, um, uh, in terms of how to, how to write? You know, I think the, the older I get, the longer I teach, the, the big challenge for me as a professor to, is to try, to try to connect students to subjects that, that they can write about that will allow them to discover their, their, their voices as writers. And I, I'm not talking only about fiction. I do teach fiction classes, but freshman comp. I mean, I've taught everything from freshman comp to to graduate fiction courses. And um, it, it doesn't matter what the course is, uh, what 
kind of writing they're doing. It could be a short story or a poem or a research paper. You have to connect them to something that has some kind of importance, significance to them. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the challenge. Um, I mean, there's all, always all kinds of, you know, other challenges, how, how helping them to write uh, well, right? I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> helping them to, to write grammatically well. Yeah, <laughs> it does nuts and bolts. But the real challenge is to connect them to something that they can write about and feel like they're bringing something to the table. That's the real challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, giving them opportunities for uh, uh, good practice mm -hmm. is, is all I do. That's mm -hmm. really all I do. Sure. Nice. Do I, I, re I really ahead. appreciate that thought about um, and that desire to help people write, basically write honestly. Exactly. Uh, that mm -hmm. if you don't, and, and I mean, certainly in the, in the nonfiction space, it's really easy to see that. Um, but I've never thought about that in the fiction space as well, that it's like there has to be, you really have to know what you're talking about you like even in even in a completely fictionalized world mm -hmm. um so i'm i'm glad you raised that point yeah. yeah yeah um and uh most of the teaching i do these days is is uh um is just standard comp a lot of comp um we had a graduate program for 20 years in, in fiction and poetry uh but we we went through budget cuts a few years ago and we lost the program which, you know, yeah. it happens that uh, yeah. if you've been around higher, edu higher education long enough, you know, you go through these, these uh, ebbs and, and flows. And um, we've been in some major ebbs in the last few years, at least here, the demographics have, have worked against us. Hmm. And so, um, you know, um, I, I, I found that the teaching, uh, writing is teaching writing, you know, no matter what the age group or, or, the, or the, even the subject or the particular niche of the discipline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, so what do you say to a student who's an engineering major? I'm just going to use them as an example, but they're uh, taking your class. Um, they wonder what's this going to, how's this going to help me and what I do in life? What, what, what's your message to someone who's not in that, uh, in the English field of sorts? Yeah, good, good question. Kind of a hard question, but but I guess for me, um, what we do as English professors is is two things. We teach people to read difficult texts. Um, I don't think there's anything better than poetry for pe teaching people to read difficult texts, and so um, and we teach people to write and to um, to uh, translate into language. Uh, the sophisticated things going on cognitively inside their minds. And so those are the two things we do. And um, I think for people in the hard sciences, often, I think the, the, the one of the most important things I do is to help them to uh, um, learn how to read well. And um, right now, what I'm finding in our, you know, image-based uh, culture We've moved away from text. We've really moved away from text. Students are challenged by a full page of dense text. That's, that is their challenge. More than writing, I'm seeing a, a fall off in reading skills 
which is a little disturbing. But go go to the library someday if they have if you have a good library nearby, and pick up a Time magazine from uh, 1970. You know, go into the stacks and find one. Yeah. Look at that magazine; it'll blow you away because you open it up and there's you know there's a thousand words on a page. Mm -hmm. um, go to Time magazine now, or you know, go online and yeah. and read read anything anywhere online. But people uh, 40, 50 years ago were processing text in a completely different way than we are now. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what I do with, and I do, I have engineering majors and, and biology majors and art majors. I mean, every kind of student you can imagine. Mm -hmm. But my main challenge with a lot of them is just to help them uh, process text, mm -hmm. academic text, because... Mm -hmm. They're gonna they're gonna be taking psych courses and history mm -hmm. courses and um, science courses mm -hmm. that will force them to read textbooks mm -hmm. that are, you know, <laughs> kind of heavy 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 lifting, yeah. and so that's a lot of my my challenge right now I find, mm -hmm. and that's really changed since I started teaching. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I I know exactly what you mean about, you know we. Aaron and I are, yes, we work in content. We're also marketers. And yeah. um, so there's so we're this part kind of the problem. Yeah, it's this delicate. <laughs> we're balance. all part of the problem. <laughs> I, we, we, we are, we are because we know, but we also see like, gosh, we'll write a piece of content or we'll have someone else do it. And we'll look at it and say, this is just too much for them. They can't handle this because they're so distracted. Oh yeah. And um, and, and so there's that tension all the time. We want to be effective to be able to communicate our core idea, but we also know, boy, especially online, if that happens to be what it is, we just don't have their attention for long. You know? The, oh, no, you don't. The, no, uh, I, I, yeah. And I mean, I, I do the same thing in my classes. We talk a lot about white space. Yeah. No, you, you do. You really have to. And we mm -hmm. do. We have to communicate with the, mm -hmm. the with the culture as it is. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not a woe is me. Oh, everything's terrible kind of person yeah. at all, but that's the reality. And, yeah. um, and people in the academic world where, where I'm working do have to be prepared to deal with academic text. You know, mm -hmm. that's just reality. And so, um, yeah, it's a one challenge. Thing, one thing I was encouraged by, um, I, I, guest teach some Belmont classes every now and then they have a publishing major, which is great. And it's, wow. it's a lot of people, of course, want to be in the publishing world. Uh, but there's always a lot of other people who will just sample classes and, uh, you know, out of a, you know, class of 30, I'll always ask this question because I'm just curious, because, you know, talking about a 20 year old or a 19 year old, you know, how many are reading only physical books, how many are reading an e-reader and so on. And, I generally find at most 10% are reading an e-reader and that's for popular fiction. You know, it's like basically a mass market paperback has become a Kindle book now. And um, which is encouraging. And a lot of what they will share with me, which is I'm, I'm sure you're experiencing too, is saying we're attached to this computer and we're talking through, you know, all day long. And then this thing, I'm holding up an iPhone for those listening all the time, they have to have a break in it. They are smart enough to recognize we need some sort of way to be able to get our minds focused in long form text. And I'm sure they still struggle with it just as you're sharing with your students, but 
it's still they recognize there has to be some separation in how we process this type of information but do you find that true with them too yeah yeah i think so too um well you know and you probably know better than i do but i think in about 2013 is when when the uh when the whole ebook um trajectory flattened right i mean Mm -hmm. we were in 2010 you know, 2011, 2012, I, I was looking around, everybody's looking around the, and thinking, gosh, ebooks is the future. What's going to happen mm-hmm. to paper books? Yeah. Nobody's really asking that right now that I know of. Um, but I, you know, I'm not really at the center of the publishing world either. So, yeah. so I don't know. But it seems to me like people, my mm-hmm. students, I think, too, and uh, people I know generally uh, still read, you know, they still, they still read paper books. So, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think I hope I hope that doesn't change. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's not even limited to um, to books proper. It seems to be everything. Mm-hmm. Um, the digital um, now, whether it's and whether it's because just the me the methods of digital consumption are just not very good, um, or if it's something, or if it's just people were like, okay, this this is cool, but you know, I don't want to live in Star Trek. Um, you know. Or maybe it's just physiological. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do believe like the more we're, um, well, actually last, this past year has been an interesting test to see, you know, Aaron and I, Lynn during pandemic have struggled in reading um, because of a constant level of distraction and we're actually tied more to our screens like what we're doing i mean we are zooming all the time for meetings and so on and uh books are certainly a comfort but uh but it's also just in a world of distraction it's been tough just kind of getting away and reading we're still reading a lot it's just but not as effectively that right aaron would you say that like last year was a struggle that way uh i'd say we're probably in a little better spot now from our discussions but um same thing know. happened to me. Same thing happened to me. I have mm-hmm. never read less uh-huh. than I than I've read in the last year. Um, yeah. That's not to say. Uh, I mean, obviously, online. I'm online all the time. I'm teaching online, so I'm mm-hmm. reading all the time. But as far as reading uh, what I want to read, mm-hmm. I've done very little reading. And I, I, I mean, many times I've stopped myself and said, "What's wrong? What is going on with you? How come you're not reading since yeah. the pandemic started?" And I and I don't have an explanation for it. But it, but the same phenomenon has has happened to me. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, do you um, um, uh, you know have you have you and your brother talked much during this time in the sense of like what he's had similar struggles on too? And I know he takes seven eight years to write a book. You're in a better schedule than him right now. So, but <laughs> so. yeah, you know, I'm trying to think. If we talked about this. <clears throat> We've talked a few times, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if he's. I don't think he has. I don't think yeah. he hasn't expressed that to me. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I, he, he. I think he's said to me in many ways his <clears throat> his life and schedule has has gone on. Yeah. Kind of uh, in, in a in a more or less uh, ordinary way. Yeah. So yeah. I don't get that sense that that um, that he has struggled to read yeah. during this time. Sure. Yeah. We. Uh... Aaron and I, we, uh, we, we talk about reading goals all the time in terms of number of books a year and categories. And Aaron <laughs> reads a lot more than I do. He's a, he's a lot more focused, but, uh, but I actually, you know, Aaron's reading like 120 books a year. So just oh, let's God. go with that. He's one of those guys. And, uh, 
I know exactly. Uh, Sorry. I, I, I've, I've been in that like 70 zone, which I'm, trust me, if you were to ask me 10 years ago, would I be doing that? I would say no way, but, but I'm actually back to reducing the amount that I'm reading to focus on a better reading experience. Say read slower. Don't focus on just accomplishing a book, but really soak it in. And as you're saying, your teaching is do better to reread pages, soak up the text, um, uh, but yeah, how, how do you absorb, like, how do you, how do you teach students to do that too? I mean, even once they become adults and get out of, you know, your class, what do you, what do you tell them? I have no idea if I, <clears throat> I have no idea if, if I have any effect on them at all. Yeah. <laughs> I, really, I don't, I would, I would love to say that I, I, that I do. I'd love to say that I'm getting yeah. emails, and, you know, yeah. uh, calls from students saying, oh, you changed my life. But no, that's not that's not my life. That's not how it works. Uh, so I have no idea whether I'm doing it. <laughs> I hope I'm doing it. <clears throat> so sometimes I don't know how to express it. You've just you know you've instilled something in them, and uh, for the rest of their life they hold that dear. So no, I, I would I would be encouraged. Um, <laughs> all right. So when you publish a book like American Gospel in the middle of a semester. How do the students react to that? Just saying, oh gosh, do I need to read his book? Do I need to, like what's going on in his head right now? You know, in this case with American Gospel, <clears throat> it, it's been such a out of body experience. I mean, I'm not, I'm not on book tour. You know, I've, I, every every book event's been Zoom. Um, my students, I would wager that very few of them know that I published a book this fall, last fall. Um, <laughs> It's different when when the last book came out and I was um, I, I was actually on sabbatical and I was on the road for three months. Mm. So different experience. Mm. Um, of course, then the students didn't weren't really aware either because I was on sabbatical. Um, <laughs> other, you know, if the first book <clears throat> that I <clears throat> excuse me mm -hmm. that I published, uh, people were more aware at the time just because I wasn't on sabbatical and and I was having to travel a little bit. So so students were aware. Um, but, you know, uh, at that time, I was also teaching graduate students. Now I'm teaching undergraduates and they're, they're not too, they're not too interested in what I might be doing or not doing really. Yeah. You know, it, they're worried about the next essay. They're worried about the next reading assignment. That's, that's about it. So um, I, I feel right now, like my, my two lives, cause I live this double life, you know, on the one hand I'm, I'm teaching. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I'm a writer and my ego yeah. is all is invested in my writing. It's not mm -hmm. invested in my teaching at all. Yeah, teaching is what I do to make and make a living, and and I you know I I take it seriously. I I um, enjoy it. I mm -hmm. Otherwise, I wouldn't still be doing it. But mm -hmm. um, but writing is what matters deeply to me, and what um, uh, you know, kind of what what makes me get up in the morning, and and mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I you know I've uh, over the years figured out a way to do both of these things at once mm -hmm. and and it's been a it's been a rather uh interesting and tricky uh exercise actually mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah what what's your favorite book to teach mm, book to teach gosh uh you know um i don't think my students appreciated it very much but i <clears throat> my favorite novel probably of all time is crime and punishment okay and so i always found a way to teach it even if I wasn't teaching a lit course, I remember teaching a few years ago, teaching crime and punishment to my freshman comp students. 
because I just needed to do it. Yeah. Um, and I thought, of course, everybody should be forced to read it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been one of my favorite books to teach. Um, uh, oh, gosh. I mean, the, I, I have taught so many, so many books over so many years to mm -hmm. so many students um, that uh, that I don't, I don't know that I have a favorite. Anymore. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. What do you read for pleasure then? You know, I, I, like I said, this year, I haven't been reading much for pleasure. Right now, I'm reading a really fast, do you know George Saunders? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Did, did you read Lincoln and the Bardo? I, you know, I started it. I did not finish it. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I know. I heard it's great. I just wasn't in a good place for it. No, yeah. that's fine. And, and really, it's an experimental novel. I can understand why a lot mm -hmm. of people might not enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But he's written a new book called, uh, gosh, what is the title? Um, it's, it's not a book of fiction. I got, I have it on my desk. I'm just reading it. A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, it's called. And um, it's actually a book where he's trying to duplicate for uh, for his readers what it's like for his mm -hmm. students to take a course from him. So he's, act, he's talking about these Russian short story writers. And he's um, kind of laying out for, for readers how he goes through a story with them. And what it turns out to be is a book that investigates what how a writer thinks as they move through a story. It's fascinating. It's just fascinating. As a teacher and a writer, he bridges those two worlds so beautifully. And so that's what I'm reading right now. Um, I've also been reading The Plague by Camus because I hadn't read it before. Um, and we're in one. Um, and, you know, so... I, I, my, my reading is, is uh, sporadic, depending on oh. how much time I have, um, and it's all over the place. Um, sure. But yeah, I, one of the things I look forward to most about no longer teaching retirement in the future <laughs> is reading for pleasure, because I usually read for pleasure only during breaks, because I have mm -hmm. so much of a teaching load, and I'm trying to write, so I don't have any brain space or eye sure. strength. To, to read for pleasure unless it's summer or, or a break. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. And that's part of what, yeah. When Aaron is very much in a, in a content position now too, you can share more Aaron, but like mm -hmm. same thing too, I get in modes where it's like, you're right. You're writing or reading a ton of authors of mine and I enjoy it. It's different. Just like you enjoy teaching. It's just, but there's something about just escaping and, there's no expectation other than just enjoyment. And yeah. Uh, um, I, yeah, I've got a vacation come up in a couple of weeks and I'm excited about just that idea. Mm -hmm. no, nothing else, just enjoying a good book. Very simple. Yeah. 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 When, I mean, I've been editing a lot of different people's work. And so that actually is kind of fun for me right now. Mm -hmm. um, except my problem is, is because I'm learning, I'm, uh, I'm still learning the, don't like that basically the the like learning how to fight the temptation to just outright rewrite things um so bad editor mistakes <laughs> um so gosh, yeah that's interesting that's really interesting because um i mean i've had a few editors and and that's one thing that they don't don't do is they don't rewrite i mean mm -hmm. they call attention to you know questions uh, um content mm -hmm. or or even even questions stylistic questions mm -hmm. but but don't rewrite and and for me as a as a as a teacher too <laughs> that was a mistake i made for many years is to mm -hmm. see myself as a as a rewriter 
And of yeah. course, that's not what editors do. You know, the light yeah. touch is the best touch, I think, and when it comes to editing. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, that said, sometimes when you're on a deadline, um, sometimes you just got to bite the bullet and just do oh, yeah. it for them too. So, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, especially for work for hire stuff that it's like, yeah. all right, guys, you, you, we there's a little bit less investment on, on the writer's part. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, but yeah, I, I think one of the things that has been even, uh, has been challenging for me is, is whenever I'm writing something, um, I find myself pulled in very different directions from what I'm actually writing. So I want to stay as far away from anything that's related to what I'm working on. So like, I, so it'll be hard pivot kind of stuff. Like, um, you know, I've got a, I've got a project that I'm, that I'm, that I'm, plugging away on in the background that you know is uh is a fun one that that we can't talk quite about yet uh too much but soon um uh but it is um but i mean it's very much in the you know spiritual formation um you know church reflection category of um um, of writing so it's like for me i'm i'm going the other direction in terms of my reading and i'm also reading 1987 superman uh <laughs> comics and it's glorious because i forgot how weird and uh weird and sometimes kind of shady they were <laughs> yeah. yeah wow a little guilty pleasure there yeah absolutely nice. yeah yeah, Lynn, we missed, we had a literally we had a graphic novel conversation a few weeks ago and uh or last week, I guess. Yeah, say, last and, week. Uh, it was last week. Uh this is a part of what we do, challenging ourselves in different genres, or I should say for uh, what do we call it? It's a medium. It's a medium. It's Thank a medium you. Not day. a format. I think it's not a genre. Yeah. I see I'm always gonna say that wrong. <laughs> I, I had never read one before other than I well I pretty much have never read one. So I said I would agree to write one to read one and uh, it's not bad. I'm so distracted. It goes along with that your time magazine example. I, I could not stay focused with it at all. Um, but I respect the art. I think it's uh, pretty amazing what you can do in that zone. And it's led to a lot of interesting spaces to go into in terms of storytelling. So for that, um, certainly uh, two thumbs up. But, uh, um, but I, haven't, I, read, I haven't read graphic novels. So I'll admit I feel you know, a little ashamed, but I haven't. So can okay. I say, I mean, I, I, I know yeah. there's a lot of wonderful graphic novelists and graphic novels out there. I just, I haven't sampled it yet. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, Lynn, let's go into your books a little bit more too. I, uh, you know, I know we, we, we reference American gospel. So I know usually we kind of go back, but I just want to give a quick summary for the listeners. Uh, First, I do want to talk about you and your brother early on writing together. So you're gonna to have to share, explain that one, right? Uh, and then your first solo novel was uh, Undiscovered Country. Yes. Ironically, that's the title of the graphic novel we read last week. It has nothing, no comparison whatsoever. But yeah, they're, they're not remotely alike. Not um, remotely alike. Your your book. This is not a spoiler for your book, but okay. your book does not have um, you know sandfish or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah and then uh your next novel uh high divide which i have a copy of here and then uh, american gospel your most recent one from last fall so yeah. um if you're okay i kind of want to reverse this for a second just sure. going to go with the american gospel um sure. i intentionally only finished it last night because i wanted to be fresh so i told uh, i told aaron i said let me yeah, I want to go right to the end. We were talking yesterday, and uh, but I just kind of want to know where he's going. So I'm not gonna. We're not gonna spoil things for the audience, but um, I am. What is the fascination? Uh, and I love that your novels are set in different times. This one's set in 1974, right? Um, what is the fascination with end times, and uh, how much of that is just from? your nature of growing up and knowing some of those things in the news. Just tell us a little about it. Well, I think um, <clears throat> my, my novels tend to come out of, they pursue me mm -hmm. and, and uh, I, I write out of obsessions. And so your question was my question. You, <laughs> you say, what's our fascination with end times? Mm -hmm. And, and um, America, this country, United States, Christianity in this country, uh, and especially evangelical Christianity, is is obsessed with the apocalypse, mm -hmm. and has been since about you know since about 1830 with the Millerites, mm -hmm. and um, every few years, uh, you know, well more often than that, depending on who, you know how close your ear is to the ground, but every so often, you know, we have we have these kinds of of predictions and prophecies and mm -hmm. 70s was was really ripe ripe with them mm -hmm. probably for a lot of good cultural reasons when you think about about the um the uh, kind of a new awareness of, of environmentalism um the the you know new fear of nuclear uh destruction um but the 70s was a time that i was coming of age and I was being told by people I loved and trusted that um, the rapture was was probably going to happen before the decade was over. And I w <laughs> was gullible enough to think, wow, OK, that's a terrible idea. I want to live my life. Yeah. And so <laughs> I grew up with that kind of what fear slash resentment. Okay. And, um and then as I've, you know, grown older, I've, and, 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 you know, watched the culture around me, I've seen that it hasn't really let up very much. Um, I, uh, I'm sure you remember uh, Y2K. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, my parents um, were uh, still alive then. And uh, they were complete believers that Y2K was going to usher in some kind of, some kind of um, world ending Mm -hmm. moment and uh and and so over the years i've i've watched this and i and i finally thought you know i've got to write about this i've got to investigate this mm -hmm. um and so really american gospel is is simply uh my uh <laughs> my own processing mm -hmm. of 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 that question you just asked me yeah um dave uh, and and uh, this is my answer to it. Uh, 70s is a, is a perfect time, you know, to, to write about a, somebody who is probably unwittingly uh, deceiving people. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because there was a lot of deception going on in the 70s as well, yeah. you know, politically and, mm -hmm. and, and religiously. Yeah, and yeah. there's a lot of deception going on now. There has been over the last, you know, 
the last year um, politically, and I would argue religiously as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so it felt to me like a certainly a timely release. But I actually yeah. wrote the first draft of this book, believe it or not, 30 years ago, or four, 30 more than 30 years ago. Oh wow! Um, really? Not as a rapture novel though. I just the characters, these characters, the, the old man, his son, um, they've been in inhabiting my imagination for for three decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I finally found this kind of device or this vehicle, this plot with with the uh, uh, imminent rapture that occurred to me more recently and allowed yeah. me to uh, write write this draft of the novel. Gotcha. You know, it was just an honest uh, kind of exploration of an obsession and it's a national obsession. You guys know mm-hmm. better than I do. It's a national obsession and um, I can't explain to you where it, where it comes from or why mm-hmm. we're as American Christians, we're obsessed with it. Um, Christians around the world aren't even not even close to this kind of interest in the apocalypse that, that we have. Um, we, we've come to read the New Testament passages, um, especially in, in a way that Christians throughout the first, um, oh, 17, 1800 years of Christianity didn't necessarily read, read them. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of it has to do probably with this uh, American evangelical um, um, need for uh, literalism, and, and mm-hmm. I think that I think it's that this is maybe one of the one mm-hmm. of the uh, consequences. I don't know. I'm not yeah. a the- theologian. Um, yeah, I'm writing from yeah. my own little silo. Yeah, no, no I, I think that's a good point um, because and and it's something that in in you know in my work podcast actually I I gripe about quite a bit. Um, I haven't gotten in trouble yet, so clearly I haven't uh, I haven't will. gotten any letters. <laughs> but but just that, like I I I'm really glad that you used the word literalism because that's really important. Um, because people forget that to read the Bible literally means to doesn't simply mean read it as though it's true. Read it at read it understanding the genres that are represented and the and the styles that are that are there. So you have to read poetry as poetry, and it has fundamentally different rules than history. Um, and then apocalyptic literature has its own rules that are kind of that are really hard for us to understand because we aren't from the culture in which they they came out of. <laughs> Oh, so. that's so, yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, what you're saying, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and th- there's a, I think there's um, dangerous misunderstanding yeah. um, abroad. And, 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 uh, and that that's, you know, that's what I have um, experienced in my own life. Um, and, the, and I was yeah. simply reacting to it with this book. But yeah, well said, well said. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I, I really did. I really appreciated um, because, I mean, as a Canadian, um, you know, both as a Canadian and as a person who came to faith as an adult, I didn't have the um, the 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 experience with that kind of um, end times fear type stuff that permeates the the American Christian, more specifically American evangelical culture. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so stepping into that through your book was was very interesting for me to see the counterpoint to mm. um, folks who, you know, put uh, put left behind right next to uh, <laughs> right next to their Bible in terms of authority. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, no, that that's that's uh, that, that's putting that's putting a, a sharp point on it. And um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the people. This book was so easy for me to write, really, so easy because I, yeah. I was just, um, I had a couple of experiences in, uh, earlier in my life with mm -hmm. Christian communities or Christian communes, yeah. um, and uh, um, so, so the people that populate this book are are just people, composites of people I've known, and yeah. and I really my treatment, I would argue of, of them is much gentler than, than what, <laughs> what actually happened. <laughs> in 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 those experiences yeah. mm -hmm. one one of the communities ended because of a sex scandal the other because of uh, a money scandal yeah um and uh we and i grew to love my old prophet so much that mm -hmm. i i wanted him to confront himself yeah um uh, but i didn't want him i didn't want to completely um discredit him um, because I have yeah. a lot of respect for him. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I really do. I also recognize that he is for, could be suffering some from some kind of a, a grandiosity problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, but but no, I do respect him. But but he needs he needs to recognize his own arrogance. Mm -hmm. um, and this this novel in part is about American Christian arrogance, uh, mm -hmm. and I, it's a it's a danger. It's, mm -hmm. it's a danger. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, the novel just was the easiest of my mind to write. It was just so, mm. it just kind of happened Yeah. Once, once I had my premise. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I absolutely, uh, I appreciate how delicate you were with him because the temptation is to make him out to be this, what the media would look at, like David Koresh or something. Right. And I'm like, Jim Jones, right. I, I appreciate it. Like he was living by all means a very common life before he, this isn't spoiling. He receives this revelation, you know, and uh, call it a dream, call it whatever it may be, but under a pretty genuine circumstance, you know, he feels called to do this and people start coming. It's not just, it's him inviting people certainly, yeah. but people also, all these have their, they have their individual reasons for why they come to this, uh, this small town, Battle Point, right? It's called, uh, um, and I, 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 um, I, I really, I enjoyed him, and uh, I felt a lot of empathy for him. So, yeah, I know it's not easy to do. Uh, I did too, and 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 like you're saying, um, the the dream or the vision, uh, what 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 leads to the prediction of the rapture, what. What I wanted to people to to see is I didn't want to even completely discredit the vision because I believe that all dreams are all dreams are telling the truth. Yeah, we can't have a dream that's not telling the truth. Mm -hmm. We can misinterpret the dream, you know. And we all, you know, if we pay attention to our dreams or our visions or whatever you want to call them, that's the danger is that is that we misinterpret them. The mm -hmm. the other danger on the other side is not to pay attention. And so what he does <laughs> and his, his, uh, friend, uh, mistress, um, mm -hmm. lover, uh, Sylvie, um, 
she, you know, she recognizes that what his, his dream has legitimacy, mm-hmm. but she warns him. She mm-hmm. warns him that he may, that he's probably misunderstanding it. Yeah. And of course she's, she's dead on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The scary thing, the scary thing about writing this novel was, was writing toward the end and not knowing, and I won't say anything about the end, but not knowing how I was going to get myself out of this jam I was writing myself into because um, it's 1974 and, you know, we're reading it in 2021 or 2020. Um, and we assume maybe the rapture didn't happen in 1974. <laughs> so yeah, yeah I, I didn't know how I was going to write my way out of the novel. Um, so this ending was scary to write. Well, um, and just so readers know, you know, uh, or listeners in this case, you know, it's set over a two week period leading up to it day by day. And so, yeah, well done with the tension. Um, it's a countdown. Yes, it's <laughs> yep. a countdown. But you don't, but I mean, yeah, you, of course, you know, we're here, right? So <laughs> this isn't some other weird genre that uh, goes into a world that's alternate universe. It's just, no, but I, but I, but I was like, I know I told Aaron, I said, I got like 40 pages to go. So I like, and I'm on the edge. And uh, yeah. I said, even though I know generally where it's going, it's just, uh, yeah. it's still left enough mystery to where I was curious how every character would react. There you go. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. That, well that, that's an, uh, a challenge too with an ensemble novel. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a novel with, one could argue, three different characters who, who might be perceived as protagonists um mm-hmm. and so the novel's channeled through their the consciousness of all three of those those characters and mm-hmm. and so then you're obligated as a writer to allow for some kind of a significant experience or change to happen for all three of those characters yeah so you're you know you end up with a um you know talking technically a kind of um serial climactic moment for each each character so mm-hmm. it, you know it but yeah it was um I, it was a lot of fun to write i hope it's fun to read it because i just i just had um a blast writing this book yeah good good well it was it yeah. was it was a it was pleasure to read so. thank you yeah um yeah it was it was good uh christmas break reading for me so <laughs> i had uh um the your publisher had very kindly sent me an early copy of it and uh, via via PDF, and um, which eternally grateful for. Um, so I started reading it, and as soon as uh, as soon as I started getting into it, it's like I'm just going to go ahead and pre-order this thing because I want a physical copy. So mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it, and by the way, even as we lead into high divide notes, two different publishers, but well done on the packaging. Sorry, the publisher, you know, minded person me. I'm like, I love the feel. Great job on the texture, all those things. The covers are wonderful. High divide is lovely. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think kudos to to uh, the publishers in both books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, the high divide. So that's the first one I read, and I'm sure a lot of people, if they're discovering your writing, that seems to be one that. Uh, uh, and I, and even though we, we've had a discussion on this show about Western set uh, settings for novels uh, or out, all out Westerns, and this certainly fits in that category. And, uh, but um, I, I loved it as well. <laughs> you know, I loved it for different reasons. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'll just kind of start, I, I sent you a note on this as part of it, but, you know, I live right down the street from Shy's Hill from the Battle of Nashville and you go to the very top and you're reading all the monuments and you realize 
who fought to take this hill was the Minnesota 7th and a couple other regiments from Minnesota. And I remember sending a picture of it to Barnabas, you know, our friend from Minneapolis and uh, um, just saying, oh, this is, it's fascinating. The more I've learned about the battle and uh, those from Minnesota, it was fascinating. And that seems to be part of the story of Ulysses, the main character, right? Right. Ulysses is a, is a veteran of the Civil War and he fought with the Union Army. He was in, you know, or he was a Minnesota resident. So he was part of that, that regiment. Um, and interestingly, and I'm not quite sure why I chose that, chose that regiment when I did the mm -hmm. research on the book, I did a lot of research for that book, mm -hmm. but, but it's in, that, uh, regiment was being mustered up originally, uh, in 1862 during the, the Sioux uprising in mm -hmm. Minnesota. So their first action was really in, in the Minnesota, uh, Minnesota was a state. It was a state already, but there, there was this, you know, the, the what was it called? It's various names, but the Sioux Uprising is one of the names for it. <clears throat> and then during the Civil War, yeah, they 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 were, um, they they fought the battle in Nashville. Um, they also were part of um, kind of shoring up supply lines for, for Sherman's march to the sea. And so it was an interesting regiment to be a part of. And and he mustered out after the war. But then he joined up when when uh, Custer's Seventh Cavalry was being formed in 1867. So he's out. The character Ulysses from the High Divide was out of the service for two years, and then he rejoined yes. and was part of the Western campaigns during the Indian Wars. And and the, um, of course, the the impetus for the novel is that he was involved in the Washita incident in Indian Territory uh, and committed war atrocities mm -hmm. for which you know he's experiencing tremendous guilt and ptsd yeah um and that's what triggers you know the the events of the novel because it's a book about forgiveness you know mm -hmm. um, all my books are about forgiveness yeah. and, uh, and and the high divide is definitely a book about forgiveness a man who is not enough it's not enough for him to to know that he god forgives him that he he needs to make it right mm -hmm. and so i mean if you take if you steal a hundred dollars from somebody um and feel badly about it and say god forgive me that's not <laughs> that doesn't mean very much if you keep the hundred dollars yeah. and so he feels like he has to travel west in order to survive psychically, he has yeah. to travel west and find the man whose son he murdered yeah. and and ask the man for forgiveness, which mm -hmm. sounds crazy. And it is yeah. crazy, but, it, yeah. but he's in a crisis of the soul. Yeah. And um, that's that's what this novel is about. Yeah. Ultimately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even not knowing if he'll ever find him, even leaving his wife and, and two sons. Right. I mean, there's a lot of mystery and keep in mind they don't know right that's what's they don't know that he's he's on this journey to do that they just they know don't he's just left they don't know because he yeah. can't bear to tell his wife what he's done yeah he can't do that he cannot tell her so yeah. he just he leaves in, in, a, in a kind of a panic he just leaves hmm. and um and of course then the novel becomes this investigation of why he left uh, and to me, that was important to, to tell it largely from the point of view of the family. Um, 
and 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 I think because uh, you know when you consider the the um, genocide that happened in this country mm-hmm. to Native Americans, and it was a genocide. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we we're all living in the in the wake of that, mm-hmm. and in that sense, it's not a matter of personal culpability. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a matter of of uh, species or national culpability. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I feel like the family, uh, Ulysses' family, are, are like avatars mm-hmm. for us. <laughs> That's how I see it. Yeah. And. Um, and so I had to tell it. I didn't want to tell it only from his point of view because then it would have felt to me too preachy and too mm, maybe even really put people off. Like, yeah. you know, here's this guy. Um, we we should feel his, his guilt. I didn't want to put it on people, but I, yet I I wanted to put it on people mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. way that they could slowly absorb it. Like we all slowly absorb the sins of our race, our, our, our nation, you know, mm-hmm. we, mm-hmm. we do have to, um, and we're in a moment of reckoning now, mm-hmm. you know, certainly post George Floyd, we're, we're at a moment of reckoning. And I feel like a book like the high divide is, is a book that kind of yeah. anticipates that. Um, and, and it's why I wrote the book, you know, um, to, to investigate that. Mm-hmm. But it's a book about forgiveness. Uh, I, I, you know, if if any anything motivates me uh, as a writer thematically, that's that's it. You know, I'm mm-hmm. fascinated with forgiveness and how difficult a thing it is um, to to uh, really what absorb mm-hmm. uh, from either side of the equation. Yeah, yeah, I. I um... I appreciate creative ways to walk people through very complex uh, parts of our history. And, you know, there's the whole, we, we learn, Hey, I studied history in high school, college, and we all mm-hmm. learn manifest destiny and part of manifest destiny. The ugly truth of it is the reality of is genocide. Yeah. And, um, and, and we're still paying for that today, but in many ways, you know, I look at over, or senses of a nation of that being certainly a prominent one. It, it seems to be getting left out more and more. Uh, that's not anyone's uh, uh, intention. It's just there's so much, especially the last couple of years of, with George Floyd and this level of what does racial reconciliation look like today. Um, Aaron and I, mm-hmm. you know, talk about this often. How do we look at it from the context as believers in Christ? How do we reach our hand out and what's our role in that? Um, mm-hmm. But as a nation, we clearly are struggling with it. And so I read it in that context, and I thought it was really helpful in the way a To Kill a Mockingbird does it in that similar way to, to help people to understand someone else's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah. And, and I was going to say, in, in a way that doesn't approach it simplistically. I mean, that's that's one of the that's one of my great frustrations is uh, just in life is simplistic approaches to any complex problem. That yes. if we like, so for example, the the answer to racism is to be anti-racist. It's like no, the answer is not to be anti-something. It's mm-hmm. to be for something else. But you have to figure. But you have to try to yeah. understand 
what's yeah. going on underneath to the best of your ability yeah. um, in order to do that. Yeah. And I also appreciate, especially both of these books too, reconciliation, especially, um, well, it's not exactly what you expect. That's all I'm going to say. I don't want to try not to ruin anything because I really want people to go all the way through these stories. They are tremendous books. Um, and I want to dig in one other layer with that too. You and your brother and the father son thing. You guys just love it, don't you? You gotta you gotta break that down for us here. All right. Would, you know, I yeah, I talked I was talking with Leif about this yesterday. And <laughs> uh, and, I, and I wish I, I wish I had some kind of an earth shattering um observation to make, but but I was kind of scratching my head, you know, with him and saying this keeps coming up in my books. Um, mm -hmm. I obviously got some kind of major issues. I wish I knew what they were. <laughs> uh, but I do I do think that, um, and, and I know this sounds trite, it sounds like a cliche, but but I came of age uh, in a time when fathers were, um, oh, were, were the bad cop, you know, in the family. And uh, that certainly was my dad. And uh, I think in many ways, um, I probably, I was very, very different very different kind of person than my dad and um, probably was probably disappointed him in some ways or I felt I did mm. um, even though he, he was a good a good a good father he's very good father but um, but I think I did feel that that we never um, uh, were able to um, connect on a level that I that I was looking for mm. um, and um, and so may you know I, I don't know how to explain the father-son um, uh, themes in my book. I, I don't know how to accept, you know, I could go into, which I'm not going to do, stories about my own dad. But, um, but, I, but I do think that, that I felt this kind of uh, gap or almost an abyss between us that I didn't, that I wasn't comfortable with. Yeah. And, um, as a father myself, I, um, I've probably erred on the other side. You know, I've, I've really um, tried to be very close to my son, um, and I, we have been quite close. Mm. Um, but again, uh, it is if you guys are parents, I mean, you know, it's mm -hmm. it's so hard as a parent um, to um, to not feel as if you, you know you failed your kids in some kind of elemental way. It's hard for me, yeah. Um, yeah. and so my books are always kind of. Um, investigating especially that particular relationship which has mm -hmm. been a vulnerability of my own mm -hmm. um and uh i i don't you know i don't know leif um didn't have any real great <laughs> ideas either i mean we both felt like we're kind of floundering around and yeah. it, i think it's i think if i could articulate it for you which i can't maybe i wouldn't be writing the books um because yeah. writing novels uh, is is a is an investigation mm -hmm. um it's a it's a way to um make up for i think what what uh we can't understand figure out and articulate on our own um and so we write stories and kind of you know beat around the bush and find our way ultimately toward some kind of end or finality at least within the parameters of the story but it doesn't necessarily mean we figure ourselves out. Sure. Uh, and I certainly haven't figured myself out when, when it comes to that question. <laughs> I just know that it keeps coming up in the stories. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, 
I read into it as uh, not, I'm not psychoanalyzing it's that it's more well, just, you're welcome to it's no, it, it, uh, it's more, you can read these in a couple different contexts. One, you have a great relationship with your, 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 your father, or you don't, and you get unique things by reading, by following these. And I think we all want to know where do we come from? What, what, you know, why are we the way we are for better or worse? And then, the flip side, which you just mentioned, which I, I look at these stories the same way, Aaron and I've talked about, it's like, how do we pour in our own children and how our legacy goes through them? Right. And there are ways to reconcile that too. Um, none of us are given a perfect hand in it, um, but um, it helps me to have a lot more grace <laughs> I, I, uh, when I realize that, uh, yeah, I mean, the more you learn about people, the more you realize, boy, everyone's got their thing. And it's... Uh, you're not alone. <laughs> Even the ones you think are perfect, you dig in those layers deeper and you realize, oh, that father-son relationship, that's that's not really what I thought. Yeah. And um, helps you process uh, a little bit better. Hmm. Well, you know, and and, and really, um, it, 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 every, for me, every uh, book, every relationship, it all, always comes down to forgiveness because without that, all yeah. we're doing is is uh, creating the the hell that uh, we create between and among us mm -hmm. um, with, without that. And mm. so um, I think certainly in American Gospel, that's what it comes down to. My first book was a was probably the most raw most raw investigation of, of mm. that question, mm -hmm. context of of the Hamlet story because it's a reinvention of Hamlet. Yeah. Uh, you know the Hamlet story, which is comes out of really comes out of the Danish tradition. Well, um, and and in a moment in time in the 12th century, where there was this uh, well, Saxon Grammaticus, the the, the Danish historian, uh, wrote this thing called Ambleth, and that's what Shakespeare is working with with Hamlet. Mm -hmm. But but coming out of a of a time when when the pagan traditions of blood vengeance were being challenged by Christ's new law of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And so that play comes out of that, that transitional moment in history. Yeah. Um, but of course, it's a moment that we all experience every day. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that novel was, was really a, a kind of pointed investigation, I think, of, of forgiveness, too. Mm -hmm. um, but in a way that the others were, I think, more tangential, at least in my own thinking. Mm -hmm. yeah but yeah that the um uh it's always dangerous for for me to do what i'm doing sitting trying trying to talk about my own work you know i mean yeah. i'm i'm in the i'm i'm in the middle of the woods and i'm trying to talk about the forest and so you got to take it with a grain of salt <laughs> yes yeah 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 <laughs> um well a couple last things before we go to so uh just you know a lot of people don't know and i i i um, I've had conversations with people who have read you and read Leif and I had no idea you guys wrote together and are just fascinated with that. So is there, you, you wrote six novels together under L.L. Anger back in the nineties, primarily, right? We did. We did. Yes. Okay. That was our, that was our attempt to sell out. Mm. <laughs> oh, we, we thought, we thought we would uh, make a killing on, on writing some mystery novels and, uh, thought we'd, you know, maybe, uh, save ourselves from having to work for a living 
<laughs> you should have you should have written more about the end times then it was the 90s right yeah you're on the wrong track i'll tell you that yeah. i mean we, we could have beaten tim lahay to the punch i know that's right that's right gosh i mean there could be it could be time for the return of gun peterson though so well you never know i don't i don't know we we are slowly bringing those books back to to an online uh, existence and those books were a lot of fun to write. We, yeah. They really were. Uh, I'm not making any claims for the books as literature, but they, they were fun to write. I think some people found them fun to read. Yeah. And Leif and I, I think in those books taught each other how to, uh, how to write novels, you know, pacing and characterization and plot and all those things that novelists have to learn one way or another. I think we probably learned together uh, mm -hmm. by writing those books together. And so yeah. it was a, they were learning books, I suppose. Um, and, and we just had an absolute gas writing those books. Yeah. It was, it was fun. We would plot them together in a weekend and then we'd go off and spend about half of a year, each of us writing, mm -hmm. you know, separate chapters. You'd do one through five, maybe I'd do six <laughs> to 10 like that. So we'd write it in half the time and then we'd have to try to sew them together like a Frankenstein's monster. Um, it was it was a pretty interesting experience yeah can't, can't be easy to do yeah i i bet uh but it was well, easy for us because we kind of uh anticipate what the other guy is thinking and yeah i mean we're we were able to almost write in the same voice um it, it got to be uncannily uh smooth the process did um mm -hmm. but you know I couldn't have done it with anybody else. I, don't think. Uh, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, well, I, I just saw the, um, the first of them, uh, at least that I, that I've picked that I, that I've been able to, to find that is, uh, that's in that re-released form, uh, yeah. comeback. Yeah. So I am, uh, I'm looking forward to checking that one out. <laughs> okay. It's going to be a lot of fun. Okay. Yeah. There, I hope so. I mean, I hope it's yeah. fun for you. Uh, they're supposed to be fun, right? Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty light reading. Yeah, um, well, I mean, just the premise of it as as a non sports guy, even of a former former pro ba baseball player turned private investigator that that's just like, OK, I'm, I'm all about this. Yeah, <laughs> Dave, this is the yeah. sports book I'll get into. I, yeah, I, exactly. I think yeah. fiction's your entry point, Aaron. This is it. I know. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> no, I, I think it's fun. I, I you know, we're having uh, uh, next episode Pete Peterson from the Rabbit Room on, and and if you don't know them, Lynn, it's a it's a great community of writers, readers, uh, and you know, their big thing is just like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and the the Inklings. You know. You share your ideas. You get feedback. You help build each other into better writers. Um, that's that's the idea. And I think it's hard putting your stuff out there, and uh, you know, uh, having some who can speak truth to help make it better. It's a vulnerable experience, but a good one, an essential one. Yeah. Well, to have have um, uh, sympathetic, smart readers it is what we all need in order to improve as writers, and uh, that's hard to come by. Yeah. Uh, well, Lynn, this has been a pleasure. Really, thank you for doing this. Uh, you know, we, uh, uh, 
Aaron and I were going back and forth. I'm like, we've talked about Lynn. I just need to find him and invite him at this point. I thought I was like, oh, I can go through Leif, but I'm like, I'll just send an official, you know, to you. And I appreciate your quick response and willingness to spend. I promised an hour and we've gone way beyond an hour. Yes. So thank you. Yeah, for, so thank you for the extra yeah. time. I know. Yeah, no, it's been my pleasure, guys, and and wonderful to meet both of you um, because I had heard good things, and uh, and so this has been a uh, an easy, enjoyable, enlightening experience for me. So I, I appreciate it. Whenever this weird pandemic uh, uh, lifts more and more, I mean, it's hard to tell. It depends where you are, apparently, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, please visit Nashville. Do a signing here when you're next, kind of like. Uh, yeah, I'm right down the street from Parnassus, where uh, I think Leif did his signing that time. I took him to, and uh, yeah. But yeah, it was a great, great reading, <laughs> book buying community here. <laughs> Most yeah. importantly, in that sense, I'll look forward to that trip. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. All right. All right. Cool. You guys take care. You too. Okay. okay. All right. Well, and uh, Dave, thanks for hanging out as always. Thanks for leading this conversation. This is great. And uh, listeners, you know what to do. Five-star ratings, reviews all around. This is an Area Code podcast.